So four years of undergrad, four years of med school, three to seven years of residency, maybe a couple more years for a fellowship, and then finally, finally, you get to use those two letters after your name, MD. The reality is for me, actually, is my friends now have finally made it to that stage and that point in their life. After going through 10 to 11 years of additional school after undergraduate. I was just with one of them a couple of weeks ago, and he's now working for Kaiser as a medical doctor. Finished his fellowship. I graduated in 2009 from UCLA, and only now are they full-time doctors practicing. This is the reality of many of my friends, and it's now very much uh, an accomplishment in their life. But imagine with me for one second. Imagine that after you or one of my friends, or after you've gone through 10 additional years from where you are today, 10 to 12 or 13 or 14 additional years of school, at the end of it, after you've walked the stage, you've been given your full right to be a doctor, to practice medicine, you say, you know what? I'm out. I'd rather flip burgers at McDonald's instead. Sign me up. That's what I want to do for the rest of my life. I got some thumbs up. Okay. <laughs> Hope that's not a, your path there. Foolishness, right? I mean, who would acquire years and years of knowledge simply to throw it away? To learn about how to give life and, and to sustain life. But then to say, you know what? I don't want anything to do with this anymore. Instead, what, do, what happens? You walk the stage, the commencement speaker, the president, the dean, they, hand, they shake your hand and send you off and say, go, practice, make a difference in this world. Take everything that you've learned, all of the knowledge, all of the wisdom, and practice. And as we look at our text today, we realize that last week, we came to the end of a wealth of knowledge, Romans chapter 1 through 11. Over the past couple years, we learned that the gospel is the very revelation of God's saving righteousness made available to all throughout the earth. We learned about the depravity of man the sinfulness of man, how man cannot save himself, and yet God sent his son to die on the cross so that we can be made clean, that we could be made right with God. And chapters 1 through 11 have made it clear that the destiny of man who is righteous by faith, well, his destiny is a life of obedience towards God. Chapter 1, verse 17, we saw that for in the righteousness of God, is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Chapter 6, we learn that you can only serve one master. We want to be slaves of righteousness. We want to live a life of obedience. Chapter 7, there's a tension that Paul had. I know the right things I want to do, and yet, yet my flesh desires to do something else. 
there's this right way I should be living according to the scriptures. Romans chapter 8, we talked about living in the spirit, abiding with Christ, having this union with Christ so that we can live an obedient life. The obedience required of Christians is not just obedience in principle, it is rather an obedience of thought and attitude, of word and deed played out in concrete situations in our life. And that's what we've learned throughout the first 11 chapters. But Romans chapter 1 through 11 was not simply an academic exercise, but it is, and it was meant, and it is today to be used to prepare us for obedience. Just as for medical students, you are spending years and years gathering wealth and knowledge about your practice. So Paul was explaining all the riches and the depths of the doctrines of God's grace to us so that we can go out and live for him. For some of you who may have recently become a Christian, this is the point in Paul's letter where it becomes extremely practical. For for those of us who have been walking with Christ for, for many years, the first 11 chapters may have just been glossed over in your minds but I urge you and implore you to look back and now look forward to the application that is before us. It's not only about doctrine, but it's also about our duty. It's not only about what you believe, but it's also about how we behave. Not only the explanation of his truth, but it's about the demonstration of our life played out. Our exhortation is therefore necessary here, as Paul turns the corner to application, an exhortation which does not stop at the abstract and the general and the doctrinal, but is concrete and particular. It is such an exhortation that we find here now starting in Romans chapter 12. And much of the rest of the book will be extremely practical, built on the foundation of the rich and deep doctrinal things that we've learned. So today, we want to put the kind of the thesis statement for moving forward in these first two verses before us. And it is to be a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice. In these first two verses, there's an appeal, an appeal to be living sacrifices. And then after verse two, we'll jump into verse three and go all the way through the rest of chapter 13 and look at five marks of living sacrifices in community. Five marks of living sacrifices in community. So two parts, two big things today. First is kind of the thesis moving forward throughout the rest of the book. That is an appeal to be living sacrifices. And then we'll get down into the very, very, very practical five marks of living sacrifices in community. So first, the appeal to be living sacrifices, verses one through two. And Paul here explains why. Why? And that's the question we need to ask. Why do we need to be living sacrifices? And so here's the motivation. And Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And this is not simply a um, a request, but it is an appeal. 
But first, we must look at the word therefore. And whenever we see the word therefore, we must always ask ourselves the question, why is it therefore? What is it therefore? Basic hermeneutics, good. So whenever you see a therefore, say, why is it there? What is it referring to? Well, it refers to chapters 9 through 11, what we had just learned. But it goes back even further, not just about the Jews and the Gentiles. It is also true um, that this is encompassing everything we've learned from verses 1 through eight, uh, 118 through 1136. And it is concerned with the action of our merciful God. And we've already just talked about this, the whole gospel and how we've been saved. The nature of this transition from the theological discussion to the practical exhortation supports this point. And Paul does this not only here in the book of Romans, but throughout his letters. You can look at Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians, where he turns this corner midway into the practical. That's what this is there for. But the motivation, what is the motivation again? There's an appeal. This is not simply a request, but it is much more than that. It, it denotes Paul's authority here in saying, because of the mercies of God that has been presented to you, I appeal to you. I beg you. I plead with you for this faith. Uh, it's not pleading for a favor, but I plead with you to listen and to heed this request. He's not simply suggesting, he's exhorting you to follow through with full authority, having just proclaimed the message of Christ. What, though? I appeal you to do what? So we ask them that question, why? Well, then we ask the question, what? Appeal, appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Our bodies as a living sacrifice, that is the what here. By bodies, he's not only referring to our skin and our bones, but to our whole complete selves, the totality of which we are composed, everything from our flesh to our mind to our heart and our soul. Of course, we, as Christians, if we believe in him and trust in him, we are already his. But there is a sense of giving ourselves completely to him. We might profess Christ. We might sit in a chair and say, Lord, please forgive me of my sins. But it's a very different reality of then getting up in our lives and making choices for, for Christ in our everyday lives and our decisions. How we live our lives and the careers that we choose, the people that we hang out with, the people that we date. It's our full self and the things that we think about, the things that entertain us. This is what we are called to do, is just to surrender our whole selves to him, our own wills, our own passions and desires to the Lord God for his service. You know, in the Old Testament, there's a picture of sacrifices throughout. And we read the book of Leviticus, and God gives commands on how to live a life that is sacrificial, to be set apart and, and holy for God. Well, friends, we're not only the ones who are making the sacrifice. We're not only giving up things for God and, and, and doing things for God. We're, we're giving ourselves to God. No longer do we have to take an animal and sacrifice, but we, we are that sacrifice in this sense. It is our whole 
ourselves. And then I ask the question, how? How do we, be, how do we give ourselves? How, how do we become living sacrifices? And it's to present ourselves here in the verse. By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This, this idea of, of presenting is again used throughout Romans. In chapter 6, verse 13, it says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Verse 19, chapter 6 as well. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. How do you present yourselves? And what do you present yourselves to? In what manner do you present yourselves to God? And what are you presenting yourself to? Are you presenting yourselves to the world? Are you giving yourself to the things of the flesh? Are you truly trusting the Lord and saying, Lord, do what you will with me? How else should we be living sacrifices? He says, do not be conformed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not allow, in other words, he's saying, do not allow the world to have an influence on you, to conform you. And the world is acting upon you, but you are the one allowing it to happen. As as a saved person of Jesus Christ, there's an alternative. But so often in our life, we allow the things that are around us to conform us. And it's important that I bring this up, but this word conformed is, is actually, it's a passive and it's an imperative in the Greek. And it's really odd in English to understand that. But it's a commandment to allow something to happen to you. So, so, but he's saying, don't allow that to happen. Don't allow the world to conform you. Don't allow the, the things of this world and, and the things that we watch, the things that we see, things that we listen to, to conform you, to conform your desires. Don't allow allow the the pressures of this world and the careers to conform your desires, to allow those things to become idols in your life. Don't let that happen. What most shapes your thinking? What consumes your thinking on a daily basis? And ask yourself that question. Are you allowing it to conform you? Paul says, don't let that happen. But instead he says, but be transformed in the text. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Transformed is also a a passive imperative. And in this sense of transform, we hear it often said that it's this word for metamorphosis, that there's like a, a transformation, like, like a butterfly would, would come about. But we can say it in this way, stop allowing yourselves to be conformed, but let yourselves to continue to be transformed. 
And the sense of transform, very similar to conform, but transform is from, often thought about being from with, within. And as we think about our transformation from sinners, unbelievers, to Christians, we can understand then how this transformation takes place. He says to continually, never ending. Um, this is a complete change that takes time over uh, throughout your Christian life. It is a fundamental transformation of character in your conduct away from the standards of the world and into the image of Christ. The more you hang around someone, the more you become like them. And so then ask yourself the question, the people that are around you, the things that are around you, and the influences that are around you, are they conforming you? Or are you being transformed within and having an influence on them? Your best friends, your parents. This is tied closely to the renewal of your mind. And in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel 36, God had promised faithless Israel that when he rescued them, he would give them new hearts with his law written on them so that they would be able to obey him. The only way we can be transformed truly is through the renewal of our minds. And it starts with the mind. It starts with what we put into our mind. It starts with what we believe and what we're convicted by. Paul has clearly explained that the Christian has received this new heart in chapter 722 and in chapter 8. And in chapter 12 and throughout the book of Romans, Paul returns to the idea here again of renewing our mind. That is the heart of the gospel, is it not too? That we have a new mind and a new heart and that we've been washed clean. Only a vision of God's mercy then, as we look back at chapters 1 through 11, can inspire us and to give us clarity as we look forward to be able to present our bodies to Christ and to allow him to transform us from within. That is the joy of the gospel. And that's how we are transformed. How much do we long to look into this word to be transformed? And I think that's a question for all of us to ask is are we allowing this book to transform us here tonight? Or is it the things of this world? Verses 1 through 2 summarize the motivation, the matter, and even the method to be living sacrifices. And now the verses following explain the marks, the qualities, or the, or the characteristics of a living sacrifice in community. Now that the banner has been placed before us, to be a living sacrifice, that you can be a living sacrifice for Christ because of what he's done on the cross. And to, to explain how to do that, to give you the means of doing that, now Paul turns the corner again and says, now let's get even more practical, and I'm going to give you five marks of a living sacrifice in community. Five marks of a living sacrifice in community. And when I say community, I really mean like community, like people here in the church, um, that you would know, the people on the campus who are not believers. So it encompasses both. And the five marks, the first one is humility. So look with me at verse three now, 
and we'll continue through. And we're going to go fairly quickly because these are large chunks of Scripture, and I want to make sure we read them. And then we'll come back and just make a couple observations. We're not going to be able to dig into every single word and to all of the issues and all of the good stuff that's within it. So we'll, couple, we'll highlight a couple things, and then we'll move on. All right, so get ready. So humility, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. One of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if surface in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does, not, who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So two observations for this section on humility. There's a negative statement here in verse 3. It says, do not think more highly than you ought to think. The reason? Well, there's one body with many members. What does he mean by that? Do not think more highly than you ought to think. For there's one body with many members. We can go to Ephesians chapter 4. We can go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In both instances, it talks about the body of Christ working together. So again, for med students, if there are any future ones out there, I think we can all understand that there are body, the body is made up of many, many parts. And the right hand is not going to do something against the body on the left hand. They can't go, to, go separate ways. They all have to work in, uh, in, together in harmony. If the, eye, if the hand starts poking out the eye, the eye is going to feel pain, and, and the hand is going to feel its consequences too as a result. The body of Christ is so similar. We have to think of it in the exact same way. That it has to function together in order to function well. That's the body of Christ. And you think of it practically. We had Michael lead music here today. We had the welcome team outside welcoming people as they come in. We have rides team that will take care of getting us all to church on Sunday. There's so many different parts when you think about it, and that all of us are gifted in different ways. So how, what does this have to do with humility? Well, it says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And what Paul means here is that God has given to each member of his body specific gifts to use for the benefit of the body and even to reach out to the world. It's not to say that you shouldn't be doing things that, that you're not gifted in. And it doesn't mean that, that you only let the, you know, that person lead music because he's the most gifted or she's the best singer. But God has given certain people certain abilities. And that's a humbling thing. I mean, think about the last time you said, man, I wish I was, oh man, I wish I could do this like this person. If only I had like that person. But that's not the attitude we're called to have. 
God has gifted us individually, specifically, and specially for a specific purpose. And as we find out those gifts, as we nurture those gifts, those things will be found out over time. Some of you may already know what you're already gifted in. Other, other people are still exploring. That's why we have great ministry teams where you can practice those gifts, where you can be affirmed in those gifts um, by, by people here at the church. But it's a humbling thing. It's a humbling thing. For as in one body, we have many members. There's not one person that can do it all. Caleb Ting can't do it all. He can do a lot, but he can't do it all. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, verse 6, let us use them. And then he goes on and explains what some of these gifts are. But there's not only a negative statement, like I said, but there was that positive statement. I've already jumped into it a little bit. Is think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And so we must not think. We must have that negative statement in front of us to not think of ourselves more highly, but then to have a sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith that God has given to you. Maybe your servant, teacher, exhorter, contributor, a leader, a merciful one, prophesier, one who teaches. The governing principle here seems to be what to be that when we use a gift, we ought to use it in order to achieve what that gift is given for, ultimately for the body of Christ, to God's praise, even the benefit of unbelievers, but never to puff up oneself, never to puff up oneself. And so often times do we think about serving as a way to highlight our own agenda, to advance our own name, our own cause, what we think is best. It's not what our gifts are for. But also the fact that we are just one member amongst many, well, that's, I think, enough to keep us humble, isn't it? Humility also, I think we can look into this passage and see sometimes we try to be the one who goes off and does as much as we can. Sometimes we use that excuse of ministry saying, yes, I'm super busy as a way to puff ourselves up. But again, we're just one person. We're just one member amongst the whole you know, some of us like to say, and I do this myself, man, we got three ministry teams to go to, three my GOC classes to attend. We've got to meet up every night, staff hang out every other night. And of course, then there's church on Sundays. While these things are not bad in and of themselves, of course, well, are we trying to say, hey, look at me. I don't know how to put this, but kind of a big deal around here, you know? Is that what our heart is saying? Humility. We're just one person in the body of Christ here. And that is a joy because I know we think about it the right way. Each of us have so many weaknesses that are other people's strengths. And together, the design that God has for us, 
together we are far more effective at sharing the gospel and being a light to this world and taking care of one another. That's humility here. First mark is to be marked by humility. A living sacrifice, a true living sacrifice, will have that characteristic of humility. The next mark is, there's actually two, I squeezed two in there, love and goodness. Love and goodness. So second and third mark, I guess you can say. Verse nine, it says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Love and goodness. Again, looking at the negative statements here, I'll break it down for you. And then looking at the positive statements, or even looking at the positive statements and kind of pulling out, well, this is what I should not be doing. What is goodness? What is it not here? What is it not? Well, verse 9, it's not inclined to evil. It's not inclined to being evil or, or to doing evil or to pursuing evil. It's not being slothful. Again, you think about this in realm of the Christian community and, and even the non-believing communities that are around you. Goodness, what is it not? And think about what evil would mean in your own life to other people. What would that look like? Being slothful. How does that affect the people around you? Verse 12, do you celebrate the faults in people and their failures? Verse 13, do you have greediness and selfishness for the things that other people have and things that you don't have? Retaliation, cursing, do you cause division, strife? Do you avenge? This is not, these are not characteristics of goodness and love. So then what is it? And what does Paul state positively here in this section? It says to be genuine in your life. Genuine. Love is genuine. It's not to be a hypocrite. It's not to say one thing and then to go do another is to be devoted, brotherly affection, affection for, for uh, this, this idea of having affection for your relatives and your family, your, your sister, your brother, your parents, this brotherly affection, 
typically love for even a parent and a child. For brother and sister, it's very familiar, but this is extended now here to this example to the body of Christ. Are you genuine? Are you devoted? Do you have brotherly affection? Do you honor other people according to what they, uh, what they have done? And do you honor them and lift them up? Are you enthusiastic about your ministry, about your life? This is verse 11. Or are you never lacking in zeal for all that you do? Do you do all things for the glory of God? Do you have patience with people? Do you pray for people? Verse 12, verse 13, hospitality. Are you hospitable? Do you bring in strangers? How do you treat strangers? Are you generous towards people? Are you sympathetic with them? Love, broken down, all of these things, characteristic of a living sacrifice. Notice, instruction for for how to love all people here. And it's not talking about only the saints. There's no distinction here between believers and non-believers, specifically in this section. The narrative goes back and forth between those who are seemingly in the body of Christ and seemingly those who persecute us. There's no clear distinction there. But I think looking back even at chapters 9 through 11 and looking at how God has given both the Jews and the Gentiles the opportunity to be the body of Christ. I see that here in expressing love to all people. For we don't know if God's going to choose this person or this person or your lab mate or your roommate. We don't know if God's going to to, to save that person who who, who treats you poorly, who, who cheats against you, who steals from you. But God says and commands us to love all these people. The third mark, we'll move on, starting in chapter 13, is submission. Third mark of a living sacrifice in community is to be submissive. Verse 1, chapter 13. Sorry, give me a second. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval." for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Regardless of how you see the government today or the government 10 years ago or where you see the government going in the future, 
this passage gives us a clear commandment, and that is to submit. But this passage is discussing more than just government, but it's about all, all in authority over you. So I want to give you a couple observations here as well. And the question I'm going to ask is, why must we submit? Paul, why must we submit to the authorities that you've placed over us or that God has placed over us? Number one, God is the ultimate authority. God has created the heavens and the earth. God gave life to all creatures and to you and to me. In a word, God created things. And in a word, God can take life away. God is the ultimate authority over each one of us and over the entire world. Verse 1 says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So not only is God the authority, but God has instituted all authority over us. Verse 6, for the authorities are ministers of God. Why must we submit? Because God is the ultimate authority and has ordained authority over you. That's number one. Number two, why must we submit? Those who resist authorities will incur judgment. Verse 2 says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Pretty clear. Why must we submit? Point three, God has appointed authorities to carry out his judgment. Verse three, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Why would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he carry, is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. This applies to all areas that the government has placed over you. And he gives a couple examples here. One that I think um, you might not dealing with now, but paying taxes, and some of you are, have to submit to the government and obey the government and our taxes, and how we pay taxes due to the revenue that we have and and, and distributing that properly, in respecting the government, in honoring them, and even would even say in praying for them. These are all applications of how to treat, how to correspond with, in all submitting to the government. So I know this question comes up often, and maybe you're asking it now. Does this passage apply to the things when the government asks us to do something that it goes against God's will? Clearly, if they're asking us to do something that goes against what God has commanded in the scriptures, they say we can't worship God. What do we do? They say we can't read God's word. What do we do? What if God what if the government asks us specifically to do things that go against his word? Well, 
An example of this I'm going to share with you. His name is Michael Cassidy. He's the founder of African Enterprise. And on October 8th, 1885, he was granted an interview with the president of South Africa. It was the time of the National Initiative for Reconciliation, and Michael had hoped for signs of repentance and for the assurance that the apartheid would be dismantled. So if you know, if you go back to the 80s in South Africa and the apartheid, here Michael Cassidy is hoping that this would be gone away with. So he has an audience with the president of South Africa. But he was bitterly disappointed with his meeting. And this is his account. I quote, I was immediately aware on entry to the room that this was not to be the sort of encounter for which I had prayed for. The president began by standing to read me part of Romans 13. He evidently evidently imagined that this passage was enough to justify unequivocal support of the nationalist government's apartheid policy. He took Romans 13 and flaunted it in his face and said, you must obey. How then can it be shown that Paul's demands for submission is not absolute? Surely we can't obey the government if they call us to disobey God. Granted that the authority of rulers is derived from God, what happens if they abuse it, if they reverse their God-given duty, if they commend those who do evil and punish those who do good? Does the requirement to submit still stand in such a morally perverse situation, in an unbiblical situation? And the answer is no. The principle is clear. We are submit right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. But if the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist, not to submit. To disobey the state in order to be... Uh, to, to not submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God. As Peter and the other apostles put it to the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than men. Acts 5, 9. Whenever laws are enacted which contradict God's law, civil disobedience becomes a Christian duty. Now, that's, I'm not saying this um, without much weight here, and I think If anything like this happens, we should all seek counsel and wisdom before disobeying the government. And there are notable examples of scripture. When Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill the newborn boys, they refused to obey. The midwives feared God and did not do uh, what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. They're not going to commit murder. When King Nebuchadnezzar issued an edict that all his subjects must fall down and worship the golden image, what did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? They refused to obey. When King Darius made a decree that for 30 days nobody should pray, what did Daniel do? Daniel refused to obey. On and on, there's many examples But coming back to Paul's thrust here 
is that we need to submit our, to our government because why? Because God has placed them over us. Because they are means for demonstrating his grace, for even controlling evil, for rendering judgment. Not only the government, but to all authorities over our life. Right now, most of us are under authority, under somebody else. But one day, maybe in the near future, maybe down the line, you'll become an authority yourself, become a manager, you become a supervisor. You'll have responsibilities and roles as a small group leader, as a Bible study teacher in your church, leading ministry teams. And so I think I turn this passage around not only to, to being submissive, but then think about the weight of the responsibility of being one in authority. And this is what you're commanded to do. But understand that you should be distributing and you should be governing accordance with God's law and his commandments. Submission. Submission. That was a third or or fourth mark, depending on how you're counting. The next one, again, comes back to love, actually. And it's important because Paul continues to focus on this idea of love. So I wrestled with, oh, do I try to combine the points? Well, Paul comes back to love, so I'm going to come back to love. So the next point is love. He says in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Here, I want to give you three observations, three points to remember. Number one, that this is not referring to financial debt here. It says, owe no one anything. That's not referring to financial debt. The immediate part following it says, except to love each other. So there's something to do with with love and and, and debt towards each other. Um, how How do we think about this? Well, the Bible does not forbid borrowing money. That's the first thing to understand. So when it says, um, oh, no one, anything is not saying, well, okay, you know, I borrowed $20 from you and $30 from you. So now I owe you something. It's not what he's saying for in Exodus 22, 25, Lord says, if you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. And so he's clearly saying, well, here's an example of lending. You're allowed to lend, but there's other restrictions upon that rule. So lending is not, is not bad. And so then obviously borrowing must not be a bad thing. It must not uh, be bad. Here we see that a debt of, uh, of another um, is okay. So that's the first observation there. And then we also see a second observation is that we must love our neighbor. A scripture commands, even though we will always fall short of the love required of us, that perpetual debt of love will always remain. And that's what this is where Paul's getting to the heart of it. 
is that we can't love each other enough. We can't love each other enough. There's always going to be a debt towards one another in our love. We must love our neighbor. And then to wrap this all up together and what really makes it, helps it make it make sense is the third point, is that love is the fulfilling of the law. So see, in starting verse 9, Paul quotes the commandments from the second table of the law, the second part. He says, honor your father and mother, and you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. But interestingly, he omits, he leaves out the first four. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols for yourself. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath. So why did he admit those? And then why did he come back and says, well, oh, no one, nothing. Love is the fulfillment of the law. It's because he's specifically talking about those commandments where you're called to interact with other people and to love other people. The fulfilling of the law in this passage is then to fulfill those laws which relate to others. Romans 5, 7 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, he gave himself to us. And that's what we're called to do is to give ourselves to others. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. When you love people, obeying those commandments. Well, the last point, we've come to the end of chapter 13, and the last mark is readiness. Readiness. A living sacrifice is ready. Verse 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual uh, immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. time here, talk about readiness, says besides, in verse 11, besides this, you know the time that the hours come for you to wake from sleep. It's not talking that, not saying that it's 840 right now, or that it's time to go to church, time to go to sleep, time to wake up. It's not specifically a time, but it's a time in the sense of a significance It's a time that refers to this period and this age, this day and age that we live in. For as that hour now has come, we are called to wake up. And if we have been sleeping, it is a call to arms. If we've been lazy and slothful, as it's already talked about previously, it's an exhortation to get up and to put on the armor and to get ready for the things that are before us. For salvation is near to us now. 
than when we first believed. Some of you are already saved. Some of you have yet to make that decision, Lord willing, maybe even tonight. But salvation is nearer to us now in the sense of, yes, the salvation has already come, but also to the salvation of the day when we are are with Christ again, when our bodies are glorified. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. See, the things of this world, yes, the day is, is dark and evil, and we see that happening more and more, but the day is at hand when the, when, when the sun is coming out again. So get ready, Paul is saying. Get ready. Go to Ephesians 6 and put on the armor of God. Let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us get rid of the sin in our life. And let us put on love. Let us make ourselves a living sacrifice ready for the Lord. And put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. For in the dark is when evil takes place. But in the day is when the light shines and the Lord is shining his light on this world. Let us live in that light and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Let us run the race, brother and sister. Let us lay aside every weight and entanglement. Let us be good soldiers of Jesus Christ to prepare for battle. The time is now. The hour has come. Get up from your slumber. Friends, these are the marks of someone who is called to be a living sacrifice. Remember the appeal. Remember the things that we've learned from chapters 1 through 11, the deep theology and the the doctrine and everything that we've learned. Now let us turn that corner to doxology to practical living, to the concrete things in our life. Let us be marked with humility, love and goodness, submission to our government, love again, and to be ready for when Christ comes back. Let us drive, let us allow, let that allow us to drive our evangelism so that others can partake in this joy with us. Ralph Waldo Emerson was an American essayist, a lecturer, philosopher, and poet who led the transcendentalist movement of the mid-19th century. He was seen as a champion of individualism and one who was going against, really, the trends of the day. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Emerson. But he makes this quote, and I thought it was really interesting. And I think people of the day back then and even today will say, oh, that's really good. This is what he says. What lies behind us and what lies before us going forward are tiny matters compared to what lies within us what lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. I say this because it strikes me that he got it completely wrong. 
what lies behind us. Think about our salvation and what the cross of Jesus Christ and all the things that have been done for us. And we think about what lies before us in terms of salvation and our time with, with Christ in heaven and having new bodies and a glorified body, being in an eternal state, worshiping with Christ. What lies behind us, God has done the hard part through Christ. What lies before us is only the best to come. He says here, those are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. But I would say that what lies behind us and what lies before us is what drives what's within us today. Friends, let us be living sacrifices today in light of the past and in light of the future. Living sacrifices for his glory. Let's pray.